Thanks, Esther, for sharing your, uh, your story and what you've walked through and are continuing to walk through. And obviously, you know, we're, we're spending some time this morning talking about joy. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Acts chapter 16. We'll be looking at verse 16 through uh, verse 25 this morning. And just to kind of give you an overview before we jump into this specific theme and passage this morning about what we're walking through in the month of December, obviously we're in the Advent season, and the term Advent means the coming or the arrival of Jesus, and we've talked about how Jesus' first coming or first Advent was 2,000 years ago, and then someday he will return again, so we're in between these two Advents, his arrival, but he's sent in spirit to live inside of us, and so that whether we want to or not, when we say yes to Jesus, we become the tangible reality of who Jesus is in our world. Therefore, when we walk through the season of Advent, not only do we contemplate and reflect and enjoy the hope and the peace and the joy and the love that Jesus brings, we also realize that God has placed that in us so that we can demonstrate that to other people. That's why we're calling it Incarnational Advent, living out the themes of Advent in our lives. And if you've been here the last couple weeks and as well today, you'll see in your bulletin, there's a little insert that says joy on it. On the front is the passage that we'll be covering today in Acts. And then on the back, there's some reflection questions and as well some recommendations or just some ideas of ways that you can practically live out joy in your life. Uh, this is, this is a, a transition or a shift for us because sometimes it's very easy to come on any kind of given Sunday morning. It doesn't even have to be in December. You hear a message and you think, oh, that was pretty good. Or maybe Pastor John didn't do such a great job today. And you walk away and, and you kind of just leave it there. And you don't live it out. The whole point of us opening the scriptures and hearing what Jesus says to us is so that we can live it out. And that's what we're doing this month. And that's why we mentioned when we get to December 29th, our Advent celebration, that's going to be a pancake breakfast. And yes, you can come in your PJs and it'll be really fun if Harold comes in his onesie. I don't want to be here for that. But, and it's going to be a great morning. But the, the main focus of that is our testimonies of what God has done in our life this month. The ways that we've tried to live out this this incarnational advent and the experiences, the things that we've done that maybe didn't work or the things that we experienced in impacting people's lives. It's, I'm enjoying this season. I, I love being able to do that. In fact, this last Friday we made cookies for like seven of our neighbors and we just went door to door. And it's really interesting when we were in Newburgh and you did that, people were very like, oh yeah. And then they would exchange cookies and give them back to you and all these things. Simi Valley is just a little bit different. We've noticed, you know, we have that huge barrier called the garage door of security that we go in and we don't talk to people. And so we, we walk up to the door and we, we ring the doorbell and they come and they kind of look at us like, are, are, you, are, you, are you crazy? You're, you're bringing cookies to it? You're wishing us a Merry Christmas? We had some great conversations with our neighbors. And then we were in Target uh, on the other day and Kim does this throughout the year, but she did it uh, this, this a couple days ago. So we're standing in line. She's looking over my shoulder and she sees the lady standing behind us in line and you can tell she's not having a very good day. You can tell that either it's the Christmas season has just crushed her or something's going on in her life. And so Kim says, grab a gift card. I'm like, okay. So I grab it. We put $25 on the gift card. And just as we're finishing our order, Kim turns around to her and she says, Merry Christmas. And at first she's again, that same look at the people in our neighborhood gave us like, are you crazy? And she said, no, this is for you. She said, Merry Christmas. And, you, and her whole face changed. In fact, when we got outside the store, we were like a little ways away and we were getting into our car and I looked and she comes out of Target and she's kind of smiling and she's like scanning the parking lot. Like, where did these strange people go that just gave me this $25 gift card? It's so much fun to be able to live that out in our lives. And so I encourage you because we, I, want to, I love to hear the stories of what God's doing and the open doors that are not just, are not just about the Christmas season, but they're about what God wants to do all year long through our lives. 
and the connections that he builds. So that's why it's Incarnational Advent. So this morning, we want to talk about the theme of joy and what that means in our life. So to begin with kind of a basic, simple definition of when I say joy, what, what I'm defining it as. And it's this, this internal happiness and confidence that you and I have even though we are surrounded with struggle and pain and difficulty that only comes from God. It's experiencing something on the inside that is opposite of what we are surrounded by on the outside. When we live that out in our lives, that's the joy that God brings in our life. And the primary avenue, which we'll talk about today, but the primary avenue that you and I experience joy in this life is not when we whip up an emotion or we choose to somehow put on a happy face, but it's when you and I fully experience the presence of God in our life. Jesus came 2,000 years ago. The Bible gives him a name, and the name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. So for humanity, we experience God's presence in our lives. And when God's presence, we understand God's presence, and we experience that, there's something of joy that becomes the foundation of our lives that doesn't allow anything to shake us or rock us or overwhelm us, because Jesus is present He's here. Uh, it's kind of cool this morning. My, my parents are here. Actually, my sister and her husband, and they're visiting from Fresno. And you hear all the stories about my parents, and they can tell you they're all lies. When you can talk to them afterwards. No, they're all true. This is amazing. So, but one of the things about my dad when we were growing up, my dad is, uh, was a professor for a long time at a Bible college, and actually a couple different colleges. And he would have night classes from time to time. And I remember when I was really young, some of his schedules, I remember Monday nights and Thursday nights I didn't like because my dad was teaching, and he wasn't home. Not that mom wasn't great, mom's wonderful, but dad's presence really meant a lot to me, even though it wasn't as though if he was sitting down at the couch and I was sitting right next to him, I didn't have to be next to him, it's just the fact that he was home. And I remember on those nights when I would go to bed, he would usually get home at like 10.30 or 11. I don't, dad, I don't even know if you know this. But I would lay in bed in my room and I would listen for our back door to open. We had a detached garage and my dad would pull in the back and then he would come in the back door and I would listen as I laid in bed. And when I heard the click of the back door, I thought he's home and I could take a deep breath and I could go to sleep because he was there. He was present on a much grander scale. The God of the universe chose to become human and then gave us his spirit so that you and I at every moment of our life can experience his presence and in his presence is what fullness of joy. And you and I need to experience that. And that's why we're in Acts chapter 16 today, which you'd think, wow, that's, it's not a very Christmassy passage, which we read and we'll read in a moment. But it has everything to do with the joy that you and I can experience in our life and the joy that God wants us to demonstrate for others around us. So starting in verse 16 of Acts 16, which by the way, Acts 16 is my favorite chapter in all of the book of Acts. It's just amazing what God did, uh, did in these times. So starting at verse 16, it says, Once while we were going to a place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. So she kept this up for many days, and finally Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Wow, being set free just simply because Paul was annoyed with you. That's pretty amazing. And when the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope for making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar. 
by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell, and he fastened their feet in in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Is that insane? Let's just be honest. You know, if you're like me, I've been in the church for a long time since I was a little kid. And you can hear story after story that you hear over and over again of the same thing. And what's sad is over time, sometimes these things that jump off the page of Scripture become commonplace. Just think about this. After what Paul and Silas just went through, and what is their response? They're worshiping. They're praying. They're talking to God. It's it's just a crazy thing. Now, just for a moment, just pause. I want you to capture the, the full impact of what they just experienced. They have surrendered their lives to follow Jesus. They're being obedient to do what he's called them to do. They're sharing the gospel. And they turn around and they, they set a, a, a girl free from a demon, which is pretty significant. They're doing everything God's called them to do. And then the result of their obedience is what? Pain, suffering, imprisonment, torture. And so, just for, so what, are they, what happens to them? So they, they get brought in front of this crowd, this mob, and, and then they are told to be stripped and beaten. So stripped mean literally down to their chonies, to their underwears. Okay, that's what they're, they're fully exposed. Can you imagine walking around in your underwear in a public place? That's embarrassing enough. Some of us don't even want to go there. But then to be beaten publicly to the point where they were flogged, which means that most likely the, back of their, the, on their, the flesh on their back was ripped open, their, the back, their back was swollen, Then they're thrown into prison, into jail, not just any jail, in the inner cell, which is like maximum security. And then they're put into these stocks, which were designed for torture. They weren't just for security. And their feet were literally put into holes that they were spread as far apart as possible. So they actually literally, their their feet would be spread as, as far apart humanly possible. So that they're standing in this discomfort with their backs ripped open, with their legs spread thinking tomorrow they could die, or they could die from blood loss right there. And what's their response? It's crazy. They're worshiping God. They're experiencing joy when there's nothing around them that would somehow warrant that kind of response. Why would they experience that? Because of what Jesus was doing inside of them. And that's what I want to begin with this morning, about experiencing joy. What can we learn from Paul and Silas' experience That helps you and I to understand how we experience joy. And what you and I will understand about what happens in verse 25 of Acts 16. What God had already been doing in them through Jesus laid the foundation for them to do what they did in verse 25. There's three things I want to touch on that actually Paul wrote about. And when he wrote to Timothy, in a couple different verses, I want to read three things that he had down, that he understood, that he lived out, that he and Silas were experiencing. And that's why they could have joy. The first one, and these might sound really basic, but they're extremely important. The first reason that you and I can experience joy, the reason that Paul and Silas could experience joy is because Jesus had saved their souls. And they knew it. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to this service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. What did Paul profoundly understand about his life? Jesus had saved him. He had saved him from his sin. He had saved him from himself. And he understood that. Paul and Silas understood that Jesus took care of the biggest issue that every human being has. And that's the issue of our sin that separates us from God. Jesus had taken care of that one. And Paul even says, I I was the worst. If you want to tally up what sin looks like, I was the worst of all sinners. And God forgave me through Jesus and saved my soul. And Paul lived with that reality every day of his life. And because of that, he could go through torture. He could go through difficulties. And yet he could still worship God for it. Because he knew that somehow Jesus had saved his soul. And if if that was true, then no matter what human beings could do to his body, they could not touch his soul. Because Jesus had secured that already. Now, just think about that for a minute. If you and I allow that to settle in, to really live out every day of our life with the full impact of the fact that we're saved. There's nothing the enemy or the world can do to take away what God has already done through Jesus on the cross. We are anchored by Jesus' sacrifice. We We are secure in what he's done for us. And we live with that every single day. That nothing in this world can touch our soul or somehow change our eternity because Jesus has already taken care of that. There's an anchor. There's a safety in the midst of danger because Jesus has saved our souls. This last Sunday night, I watched the the conclusion of the finale of my favorite show, which is The Amazing Race. I love that show. I love that show because it's an international show. You get to see different parts of the world. You get to see people make fools of themselves, doing all kind of crazy things. I love watching that show. This last, see, this last episode, it was the finale, so there's three, three teams left. and So they end up in Alaska, and they're on this big glacier, and they have to, they have to literally go across this big, it's like, it looks like a canyon in this glacier, and then they have to climb a, an ice wall. And so when they were doing it, they get all their gear on, they get their helmet on, and they get this harness on. And the first thing they have to do is they have to walk across a ladder that spans this, this canyon. And so as they're doing that, the first thing they do when they get down to the ladder is they latch on, they click in to a line that goes across. And then they walk across, and then they get these picks, and then they have to climb this ice wall. Now, as you're watching this unfold, you can tell those who have confidence in that cable that's holding them and those who don't. Because the first guy who went, you could tell he'd probably done this before, and he trusted his equipment. So he clicks in, he gets across the ladder, and he just starts climbing with these picks. He's got on his shoes, he's digging into the ice, and he's just, and he, boom, 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 he's right up to the top. Like, wow. The next person who came didn't look anything like that. They're like tiptoeing across the ladder. They're really insecure. They're like grabbing. Not only are they clicked in, but they're grabbing the line that's next to them. They finally get to this ice wall, and, and they're so scared that she actually she swings it and doesn't swing the pick hard enough to break into the ice, and it falls. You could tell it's like, is she going to fall? And she's afraid she's going to fall. So it takes her forever to get up that ice wall because she's living in constant fear that she's going to fall and there's nothing to catch her. What does your life look like? See, if you and I are like Paul and Silas and we understand that our souls are secure in what Jesus has done and there's nothing that the world can do that can touch that, then you and I look like the first guy that scales the wall like that. Why? Because there isn't any fear. Because Jesus has already secured that. But if we look like the second person that went up the wall, we're a little unsure about what Jesus has done and we're not truly sure that it's secure in what he's done and somehow we're, we're glad that he died on the cross, but we really don't know if it's fully sufficient for what we go through and what we've done, then our lives look like stumbling and fumbling and overwhelmed and 
falling apart, and joy is not part of the equation. See, if you and I really believe that Jesus saved our souls, then life looks different. It looks like what Paul and Silas were experiencing, that everything can be falling, around, falling down around them. Yet, what are they doing? They're worshiping, they're praying, they're focusing on God. Which leads to the second thing, is also that we experience joy when we understand that Jesus has secured our future. He saved our souls, which leads to the next step. So, verse, uh, 1 Timothy, actually, chapter 1, verse 16, Paul's words again. He says, for, for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, once again, Paul rehearses that, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul knew he was saved from his sin, but he knew he was saved to eternity with Jesus. He also says in Philippians 1.21, very familiar for verse, if he dies, what is it? It's gain. If he lives, it's for Christ. But if he dies, it's actually better. It's actually a positive thing. Paul had this capacity that I long for to have in my life. He was able to live his life fully anchored in the reality of being human, but with one foot in eternity at all times. That's why he could be in the stocks. That's why he could be beaten. That's why he could put his life on the line, and yet he could worship God and he could pray and keep his focus on him. Because he had this understanding that if I die, I get to be with Jesus face to face. I get to be in his direct presence. It's actually better for me. So Paul lived his life as though he had nothing to lose and everything to gain. And it's true, he did. He had this constant anticipation that the life that he would experience in the future would be better than the life he's experiencing today. How many can say that's true of our lives? We put so much into this life thinking this is all that there is. And we invest everything not realizing that this is the only hell you will ever experience if you know Jesus. This is it. It gets better. And if we live with that kind of anticipation, that means whatever goes on in this world, I can live through it. Why? Because I know the next life is going to be better than this one. Something happens to us as we grow older as human beings. When we're kids, we have the ability to live in the state of anticipation. We love anticipation. Anybody remember Christmas morning? Do you remember not being able to sleep the night before? I remember my parents, they finally had to put a cap on what time we could get out of our bed. I think it was around 6 o'clock. Because I'd be up at 3. See, in our household, my parents, they always hid our stockings. They would leave a, a clue that we had to figure out where our stocking was. So I'm like, wow, I wonder if the clue's out there. It's 3 in the morning. I wonder if she go check. You know, and finally our parents said, no, you've got to stay in bed till at least 6. It used to drive them crazy. What is that? It's this belief that the next moment's going to be better than this one. It's that anticipation. And as a kid, you and I get that. I know for me, the other thing is real simple life growing up. But the, one of the biggest things for me when I was a kid growing up was getting to go to McDonald's. That was like, it was like going to Disneyland. And if I knew in like the next hour I was going to McDonald's, I could face anything that would come my way. If I, I could tell you, my sister Julie said, she could tell you, she probably remembers this. I remember one time, we were fighting like crazy. I was like five years old, she's like seven, we're fighting, and suddenly mom comes into our room and announces we're going to McDonald's. Oh my goodness, reconciliation happened right there. We started hugging each other, we're getting our shoes on, we're laughing, it's like, we get to go to McDonald's, I don't care if I hate you, I'm getting a burger and fries. It was, it was this great anticipation of what was coming next. The older we get, the more we lose that. But Paul, as an adult, had that. He anticipated that the life that to come was better than the life that he was in. Therefore, he could endure beatings and suffering and humiliation and even death. 
because he knew that his future was secure in Jesus and he would be with Jesus in eternity. So therefore, to die would be actual gain for him. He lived that way. In fact, for most of the world, when you look at Paul, if you put Paul in Simi Valley today, he would probably be institutionalized. Because people look at him and say, you're insane. Because he lived with that abandon. He lived with that sense of, okay, I know that I'm secure and my future is taken care of so I can live all in right now. That's what it means for you and I to truly experience joy in our lives. Is that we are secure internally. We know what's going on. We know if we give everything for Jesus, we ultimately gain. And then the third thing of experiencing joy is that Jesus had strengthened their hearts. This is all that God, something that God had done in them to prepare them for this moment. So 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6 through 8, Paul says this. He says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel. How? By the power of God. Paul and Silas were filled with the Holy Spirit. They'd experienced the forgiveness through Jesus' death on the cross. But they knew that no matter what they went through, God's presence was consistently in their life. Because they were filled with His Spirit in such a way that they didn't worry, was God going to show up? They didn't worry, was God here? I'm sure when we get to heaven someday and you interview Paul, you can ask him, you know, when you and Silas were in that prison, when you were tortured, when you were beaten, was there ever a moment where you questioned if God was there? I I don't think Paul was, he's going to say, no, I knew he was there. That's why we were praying. That's why we were worshiping. That's where our focus was on him. It wasn't on our circumstances because we knew his presence was there. They were encouraged in their heart. And if you and I could capture that reality that God is always present. Now, you may be able to identify circumstances in your life, but you'd say, you know, I don't feel his presence. It doesn't seem like he's here, but he is. And the reason we know that's true is, see, God doesn't wait for you and I to do something to earn his presence. In fact, Christmas demonstrates one of the most profound things about the nature of God. God doesn't wait for our invitation. He shows up anyway. See, Jesus didn't wait for humanity to invite him to come to earth. He made the decision on his own because of his love for people. And that's true for God's presence in our life. God doesn't wait for the invitation. He's already present. That's why even when we gather on a Sunday morning like this, we don't have to ask God for his presence. His presence is already here. The dynamic is us realizing that. It's opening our hearts and our minds to him. Paul and Silas knew no matter what they went through, no matter where they went, no matter what, they were, what was going on, God was constantly present with them through the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know your specific circumstances. I don't know the struggles you're facing, but I do know who Jesus is and I know the power of his Holy Spirit that no matter what you and I go through, he is constantly present. And if we truly understand that and truly believe that, the effect in our life is joy because he's here because he's present and we can feel that inside our hearts now how do you and i transition from that to not only experiencing it like paul and silas did like we can today but now how do you and i demonstrate in our life paul and silas actually show us right here in verse 25 how to demonstrate that joy inside of us and what it looks like there's four things that i want to just highlight that they did that you and i need to learn to do in the midst of their suffering in the midst of their struggle and their pain and their persecution They did four things. The first thing you and I do to demonstrate joy is keep praying. No matter what you go through, keep talking 
to God. It says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. And then what's interesting is you go on, you read on in the verse, you read the content of their prayer wasn't what the content of many of our prayers would be if we were in a similar situation. You never hear Paul and Silas complain. You never hear them get mad at God. You never hear them blame God. They're worshiping. They're singing. They're praying. Their focus is on Him. That wasn't a part of their mentality. Because I think something that Paul and Silas got that many times I know I struggle with and I know a lot of us struggle with is somehow we have bought into this idea that God owes us something. That if we are obedient and we follow Jesus and we do what we're supposed to do, then God's got to do His part. I've heard so many people say, I've done my part, now God's got to do His part. Just a newsflash. You and I don't have a part. We don't. It's all Him. But you and I need to understand that you and I think that we can, we can somehow back God into a corner with our moral behavior. That we think, if I act this way, then God has to come through for me. Because I'm obligating God to do something. Because I'm being good, God has to be good to me. Or at least what I perceive is good in my life. We think that God owes us something. We do. God doesn't owe us anything. That's the definition of grace. It's getting something we don't deserve. It's God's choice. It's God's gift. And when we think that God is obligated to give us something because we've done something good for him, then we miss out on the gift of his grace in our life. Because when you and I really live with that reality that God doesn't owe me anything, but he's given me everything, then everything I do is a gift from God. Everything I experience is a gift from God. Why? Because God doesn't owe me anything. But how many times in our life do we get angry and bitter and upset at God because somehow we think he owes us something? He doesn't owe us anything. And Paul and Silas knew that. That's why they could be joyous and happy in the midst of suffering and pain. Why? Because God didn't owe them. Can you imagine? I mean, if anybody had the right to complain, it's Paul and Silas. Come on, it's a pretty good day presenting the gospel Setting a, demon, a woman who's possessed by demon free, that's a good day in anybody's book. You think at the end of the day, God, I deserve a pat on the back. I deserve a free pass. But they didn't see that in the passage because it's not there. They kept on praying. They kept on, on engaging God. They kept engaged with him because they weren't upset and mad at him that somehow they, he owed them something because they were good in what they did. Understand that. Sometimes you and I, we, we say we're not under the law, but we set up a contract with God. And that contract is, God, if I jump through your hoops, then you have to jump through mine. And that becomes the definition of our faith. And we miss it. Jesus doesn't come to be obligated. Jesus comes and asks for our life. He asks for us to surrender ourselves. See, that's why Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, probably a familiar passage. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me, the life I now live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What was Paul saying? I'm a dead man. God doesn't owe me anything. I'm dead. You know, I've done a lot of funerals in my life. I've actually seen a lot of dead bodies. I've never seen once a corpse sit up and start complaining about its condition. Never. Haven't seen that. Why? Because it's dead. There's no life. That's what Paul's saying. I'm dead to the old way of thinking, the old way of living. I don't even go back there. The only life I have now is not the life that I'm living. It's the life that Jesus is living through me. Therefore, I don't have a right to complain. I don't have a right to blame God. I don't have a right to get mad at him. Why? Because everything I have is a gift from him because he owes me nothing. 
but he gives me the free gift of his grace through Jesus' death on the cross for me. If you and I let that settle in, then we start to demonstrate joy in our life because our joy is not based on our circumstance, but it's based on who Jesus is in our life. Second thing, going on to verse 25, they kept praying. Also demonstrating joy means keep, you and I keep worshiping. So this is about midnight, Paul and Silas, so they were praying, but they were also singing hymns. They were worshiping through song. Now, worship is a lot bigger than singing songs, but it's one of the ways that we worship. So they're worshiping in the midst of suffering and pain. Their focus is on God, they're focusing on Him, and there's this depth of their worship that's so profound, we'll talk about it in a moment, it's even influencing and impacting people around them. They're worshiping in the opposite place of what worship is. And there's something that's really powerful about what you and I need to capture about what worship is. You and I, it's amazing. So Paul and Silas are beaten, they're, they're stripped naked, they're embarrassed, they're ridiculed, they're thrown into prison, and they're worshiping. That is like the opposite of what you and I would define as the worship con- perfect context for worship. See, it takes far less for you and I not to worship. Just think about this for a moment. Just think about, we're defining Sunday morning, the kind of worship we do. The last time I checked, I had never met somebody walk into our church who's been stripped and beaten and thrown into jail and then walked into church and said, hey, I'm ready to worship this morning. Haven't met that person yet. But you know what we do walk in with? We walk in a little bit late. We wonder if the worship team's going to be on key. We wonder if the music's going to be too loud. We wonder if the temperature in the room's going to be right. And if one of those things doesn't line up, what do you and I do? I'm not going to worship. I might open my mouth and say the words, but I'm not engaging with God. Maybe next week when, we, when you arrive, I'm going to put some stocks out in the lobby and there's going to be someone out their side. They're going to flog everybody as they come in. And then when we all come in, maybe worship will be different next week. I don't know. Some of you are like laughing like, is he really going to try that next week? I don't know. You'll have to come back and see. Who knows? See, you and I need to understand something about worship. Worship is not dependent on the circumstances around us. Worship is dependent on who is in us. The most profound times of worship, corporate worship, with other people singing songs together, sadly for me, has never happened on this soil. It's never happened in the United States. It's happened in other countries. It's happened in Uganda, and it's happened in China. Because when you sing at the top of your lungs with 700 Ugandan college students, your grace is enough. You sing it differently. In a country that has had decade after decade of torture, murder, war, poverty, disease. And this is the, these are students that have been, they've been raised in this and they're singing your grace is enough. They're singing it differently because for most of them in their lifetime, all they've had is God's grace. Some of them haven't even had a roof over their head or clothing or food. And so God's grace is all that they had. They sing it differently. Or when you're in a room full of Chinese pastors, when you can't even understand the language, but you can hear the heart over the language. I mean, sitting in a room with 60 pastors worshiping, and I don't even know what they're saying. Some of the, sometimes some of the lyrics they would do in English and Mandarin, but some, I don't know, but I'm listening to their heart and I'm being overwhelmed with people who've given everything to follow Jesus. They put their life on the line. Every time they gather, every time they do what they do, they're in fear of what will the government do to me, but that doesn't matter. Why? Because their focus is on Jesus. So they worship, and they worship loud. We're on the fourth story of a a hotel, and I know people outside are hearing us, and they don't care. 
They're singing at the top of their lungs, passionately. Some of them sobbing. Why? And when they had a prayer gathering to open the, open the, the, the conference, it's like an hour long. And then that goes into a vo- devotion that's an hour long. And they're on their face and they're sobbing and they're crying out to God. Why? Because the depth of their brokenness and the depth of their persecution brings them to another height of worship that sometimes we don't experience. That's what Paul and Silas were, they were experiencing. The height of worship. Why? Because it didn't matter what was going on around them. It just mattered that Jesus was present so they could continue to worship. Which leads to the third part of verse 25. So we keep praying, we keep worshiping, and then joy is also demonstrated. We keep seeking. So about midnight, Paul and Silas, they're praying, they're singing hymns, and who are they doing this to? God. Where's their focus? It's not on their circumstances. It's not on the magistrates. It's not on the jailer. It's not on the mob that they just came away from. It's on God. Their focus remained on God. They were focused on what he was doing in his presence. And sometimes that is the opposite of what we experience. When we go through through difficult things, our focus is not on God. It's on our circumstances or it's on the opposite of God, which is I will reject him because he's disappointed me. Because he hasn't come through the way he's supposed to. He hasn't done what he's supposed to do in order for him to prove to me that he's God. Therefore, I'm disappointed with him. And my focus no longer is on him. It's on something else. You know, in a handful of people that I've met in my lifetime who claim to be atheists, most of them are not truly atheists. They're just disappointed with God. They actually don't know that they know there's a God that exists, but they're upset with him. They're disappointed with him. And part of the reason that we become disappointed with God, it's not God's fault. It's our perspective of God. See, we think that somehow, and we've done this in the church, and it's in our culture as well, that we have this perception that if someone will just try God, then he'll make their circumstances better. In fact, years ago, there was a bumper sticker that says, try God, and if you have it on your bumper, bumper, please take it off, because it literally sends the wrong message to the world. You and I don't try God. You don't try Jesus. Try him on for size. See if he fits. See if he makes your problems go away. It doesn't work that way. What does Jesus say? What? If you want to find your life, you have to lose it. There's no trying in that. You're all in. It's not about trying and seeing if it works. And when, when that becomes the way we operate, I guarantee you, we will always be disappointed with God. Because he becomes the means to our end instead of being the end. We simply use God for what we want. He becomes the genie in the sky that we get our three wishes and he's got to come through. And that's what leads to disappointment with God. A number of years ago, we were with Kim's family. We were at Lake Tahoe. We were were gathered. There was 4th of July. We were going to watch fireworks together. So we're all sitting kind of out on this grass area waiting for the fireworks to to, to start. And her cousin was there and he's a pastor. He had his guitar. So he was playing his guitar. We were just kind of singing some worship songs and... We caught the attention of these, these guys, probably 18 or 19 years old, and they came over and they sat down kind of where we were sitting, and one of them was a musician, and he asked if he could borrow uh, Kim's cousin's guitar, and he started playing, and so we're just kind of hanging out talking, and so her cousin starts talking to them about Jesus, and about who he is, and like probably 30 seconds into the conversation, the guy who's playing the guitar, he stops Kim's cousin, and he goes, I don't want to hear about Jesus. I don't want to hear about God. And we said, well, why don't you want to hear about him? He said, because I tried God. He said about three or four years ago, he goes, my parents were contemplating a divorce. They weren't getting along. And every day I tried. I prayed every single day that my parents would get along. I prayed every single day that my parents would not get a divorce. 
I prayed for three or four years. And he said, my parents got a divorce. He said, I tried God and he didn't work. The whole demeanor in that little circle changed dramatically at that moment. It got real in a hurry. Because his perception was, God can fix my problems. I'll just try him. And if he's really God, he'll do what I ask him to do. If he's not God, then he won't. It always leads to disappointment. If you and I are truly going to experience God, then our focus, experience joy, our focus has to be on God constantly. We don't just try him. We're all in. When you and I are all in and we've given up our life, like Paul said, we no longer are living our life. We're living the life that God wants us to live. Then you and I don't have to worry about somehow God coming through for us because he already has. He's already saved our soul. He's already done the biggest thing that you and I can't do on our own. A doctor might be able to give you medicine to make you feel better, but he can't save your soul. Jesus can, and Jesus does, and that's taken care of. Therefore, if I suffer in this life, it doesn't matter in the long run, in eternity. Why? Because I'm going to be with him forever, and nothing can change that. Therefore, you and I don't need to be disappointed with God. And then finally, the final thing that you and I have to do and understand and experience and just demonstrating joy is to keep sharing keep living this thing out. So they're, they're praying, they're worshiping, they're seeking after God, they're focusing on Him. And in the last part of verse 25, it says that they were, if they were praying, they were singing hymns to God, the other prisoners were listening to them. They were, they were singing in such a way, they were praying in such a way that those around them could hear them. And these are, these are guys that were in the same situation as Paul and Silas, probably not as severe Maybe some of them, but maybe they're just in prison. They haven't been flogged. They haven't been stripped. They're not in the stocks. They're not in the inner cell. But they hear these two guys who are in the worst condition are the ones that are singing praises and praying to God. They're hearing this. And you can see, as we, if we read on in the passage, God sends an earthquake and the doors of the, the jail blow open and the result is this amazing thing. None of the prisoners take off. But then this jailer and his family come to know Jesus. It's just an incredible story of what happens. Because God's presence is there. Jesus is actively moving in Paul and Silas's life. Why? Because they're sharing their experience of what they're going through and they're letting God use them as a demonstration of what it means to have joy in difficult situations. That's why lives were changed. That's why lives were transformed. Whether you want to acknowledge it or not, the world is listening to your life. They are. The culture we live in is listening to your life. What are they hearing? What are they hearing that comes from us? Are they hearing complaints? Disappointment? Anger? Frustration? Bitterness? Are they hearing those things from us because somehow God hasn't done right by us? He hasn't come through? Or are they hearing what they heard from Paul and Silas? Gratitude, worship, prayer, focusing on God, regardless of their circumstances. That's what they're longing to hear because really, from my experience, the world listens with two different ears. One ear is an ear of critique. How can I find a way to justify that they are hypocrites and God isn't real? The other side is, I need something beyond what I have and I'm longing to hear that in somebody else's life. Those are the kind of people that God wants you and I to demonstrate his joy. About almost a year to the day, within the next couple days, uh, one of my friends in Newburgh passed away. His name was Al Washington. An amazing human being. It's the last funeral I did before we moved down here a year ago. Did it three days before Christmas. I did his funeral. 
Al had gotten a very rare respiratory disease that just had ravaged his body. And he had it for about three years or so. And we watched the journey of kind of the, the downturn of his health and the struggles that he was going through. And he's a very strong man and, and, and did a lot of things that were very active. But over time, he started to lose that. And, but as I watched and would talk to him and every Sunday would see him and talk to him and pray with him and call him on the phone and different things and go to the hospital and he's in the hospital. One of the things I saw throughout Al's journey was that his attitude was always amazing. I mean, there were times where I'm sitting next to his bedside and he can barely even breathe. But when he could breathe, he was never complaining. He was never mad. He was never angry. He was never bitter towards God. In fact, he and his wife were the most amazing people because in the midst of this, they had incredible joy. The last two weeks of Al's life, he spent in the hospital. And when he was in the hospital, he was in ICU. I remember coming and visiting him many times. And when I would go in, it was this amazing thing. If it was other friends or it was family members or it was nurses, you walk into this room where death is in the process of occurring. And the room was full of joy. There are moments when I walked in and Al couldn't even talk because he couldn't even breathe on his own. But I could see it in his eyes and I could see it in his wife. And she knows she's about to lose the love of her life. And there would be moments of tears, but then there's these moments of joy. Al was impacting everybody around him. In fact, when I would go in there, all the nurses loved Al. They wanted to be on the shift and in his room because there was something different about him than what they had experienced with their patients. So much so that a number of the nurses came to his funeral. They were so impacted what they saw in the way that he died, that he died with joy, that he died with this security in him, that he knew what he was going to experience when he went to, to another world or another life. And it so impacted them that they actually came to his funeral. Like, there was like three of them that showed up. I've done a lot of funerals. I've never seen three ICU nurses show up to a funeral who don't know Jesus because they saw something in this man that they had not seen before. At the worst moment of our life, and for Al, the worst moment in his humanity was the moment of his death. But it was the greatest moment for God to use him to demonstrate joy to everybody else around him. The world is listening to us. And God wants to us, for us to experience joy, not just so that we can have it, but so that we can demonstrate it and give it away. That's the incarnational advent. And it doesn't just happen in December. It happens all year long. Because God's presence dwells in us and never leaves us and never forsakes us and wants to use us to impact other people. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gift that you gave to us when you came to this planet 2,000 years ago. Lord, we call it Christmas. We celebrate your birth, the advent, your arrival, your coming. And all that you accomplished when you were here physically, when you walked the planet, your death, your resurrection, your miracles, your teaching, all those things we know have changed and transformed our lives. But Lord, what's even more incredible is that when you went back to the Father, you sent your spirit to be present with us always. That's why, Lord, you say to your disciples and you say to us when you call us to your great commission to make disciples to teach people to obey, to baptize them, to do things that we know in our human capacity are absolutely impossible. You say to us, and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. You are always present. And so, Lord, I pray today, not knowing each person's individual journey, not knowing the struggles that they face, but I pray that, Lord, each one of us would experience that profound internal joy that only comes from your presence.
that whatever we face, Lord, at, at this time of our lives, that we would do that with a sense of peace and joy that comes from you that just seems supernatural because we know it's not coming from us, but it's coming from you. In fact, just before we conclude in a moment, I'm going to just, with your eyes closed right now, that you might be one of the people that as I talked about that sense of bitterness, that sense of frustration, that sense of disappointment with God, that you coming today, maybe you got dragged here because one of the cute kids that was up on stage was yours or was a relative of yours. I don't know how you found your way here, but I want you to know one thing for sure. God wants you to understand that he wants you to move beyond disappointment and bitterness towards him. And the reason he wants that is because he wants your life. He wants you to die to the old way that you used to live. He wants you to stop trying to live your will for your life and start living the purpose that he has for you. And the way that you can make that change is understanding that the way that you used to live your life has led to failure. And if you were honest, you would say, yeah, that's true. When Jesus died on the cross, he took that that failure and that sin and he paid for it in that one event so that God looks at you and no longer sees you as a sinner if you are willing to confess your sin you're willing to surrender your life. You're willing to turn from the way you used to live and choose to follow God's path for your life. If that's what you're willing to do, God looks at you and sees you are righteous. You're no longer sin- a sinner. And because of that, your life can be different. And because of that, you can experience joy. And if what I'm describing is you today, I'm going to ask you to do what Paul and Silas did 2,000 years ago. They prayed. They talked to God. I want you to talk to God right now because he's hearing, because he's present, because he's here. And you may not think he's hearing you, but he is. And you begin to tell him, I want to make a commitment to surrender my life to you and no longer live the life that I've lived, but live the life that you want me to live. And I'm going to pray in a moment. We'll conclude, but I want you to know if that's the commitment that you're making today, I want you to tell the person that you came with. If you don't feel comfortable talking to them about that, then you can come talk to me. After everybody else is there leaving, I'm going to stay up front here. You come and tell me, I am making a commitment to surrender my life to follow Jesus today. I'd love to pray with you and talk to you about what that means in your life. Jesus, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your joy. And we ask, Lord, that not only through the month of December and the Advent season, but I pray all year long we would be people who demonstrate your joy in such a way that as the world listens, they hear and they see you through our lives. We thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing in your name. Amen.